Welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Welcome to NGI's Hub and Flow. This is Carolyn Davis, and I'm NGI's Managing Editor. I'm joined today by three of NGI's top editors, Kevin Dobbs, Jacob Dick, and Morgan Evans. Earlier this month, the four of us attended the annual Sierra Week conference in Houston. The conference was huge, with about 8,000 energy executives from across the globe who offered their views on natural gas and oil, commodity prices, the future of liquefied natural gas, the energy transition, and what's happening at the regulatory level. We're going to share with you some of the things we learned and what we think you may want to keep an eye on. I've been to many Sierra Week conferences, but my biggest takeaway from this conference was the optimism I heard from oil and gas executives about the future of natural gas in particular. It's much brighter than it was two years ago. The world's top energy operators were deep into transitioning their portfolios to add alternative fuels uh, in 2021. Then Russia invaded Ukraine early last year and the world was jolted into action. Energy security has today become a paramount concern and it was a big topic at Sierra Week. That's not to say though that the energy operators have shelved their transitions to lower carbon fuels and more efficient technologies. In fact, the conference showed that companies are doing both. I sat in on a keynote by Exxon CEO Darren Woods. He made a compelling case to continue to produce natural gas and oil, but to use technologies to eliminate emissions. Instead of closing the door on the fuels that power 70% of the world, Woods said companies must find efficient ways to cut the carbon. It's an and, not an either or decision, he told the audience. I also heard quite a bit about capturing and sequestering carbon to cut emissions without backing out of investing in gas and oil. A lot of the conference experts also discussed how U.S. natural gas helped save Europe last year as the continent pulled back from using Russian pipeline supply. Jacob Dick is one of NGI's top liquefied natural gas editors. Jacob, what did you take away from the conference regarding LNG initiatives? Hey, thanks, Carolyn. Um, so this year, I, th- I think, was was interesting because um, I got a good comparison um, compared to, to last year. Around, around this time last year, we were um, not even a, a month into the invasion of Ukraine. And so, uh, you know, sitting in on Sarah Week, you got to hear uh, a, a lot of opinions and a lot of insight about how our our energy systems and, and world economies might change in the next couple of months. And um, some of those predictions happened, and some of them didn't. You know, we heard a lot of people talking about how there might be a wave of European contracting for U.S. LNG projects. There was a wave of, of contracting. Not uh, not a lot of them, or not as many of them, were were European uh, agreements as as we might have thought uh, previously. Um, 
<clears throat> but but you know, needless to say, a year later, we got a lot of uh, projects moving forward, especially on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And uh, <clears throat> I thought one of the the most interesting things that that I heard during the conference and what I spent a lot of time reporting on were the de- the developers there that um, you know we're moving ahead with projects. You have uh, Golden Pass moving ahead in Texas just this week. We heard. Uh, Port Arthur LNG from Sempra go to FID. You have uh, the next decade projects in Louisiana. And so there's so much construction and uh, so much pre-development going on with some of these projects that you you started to hear from these developers that in the next couple of years are going to be a, a special and uh, kind of a tent, uh, kind of a uh, an important time for these projects just because of the massive wave of investments and construction and labor that will be needed over the next couple of years. <clears throat> so one, one of the things I, uh, I thought was most interesting was some of my interviews uh, with Bechtel, the, the large uh, engineering and procurement firm that have uh, built many LNG trains across the world, and especially in the last couple of years on the Gulf Coast, um, and talking to their president Paul Marston about how uh, they're thinking about uh, handling the labor crunch and and how uh, labor shortages, particularly in that region, might um, influence uh, project developers in the near future. Because now they're getting to a point where, over the past, um, you know, since before 2016, when they started working with Chenier, uh, they've they've kind of uh, forged this routine where if if a company is serious about growth and they have the clients for LNG, they go into a continuous building cycle. Well, now that's becoming more important because the longer you wait for the next couple phases of your project, you could be seeing billions added onto the cost just based on uh, the expectations of labor. That's interesting. Um, you know, Baker Hughes is all, also has this modular form for LNG that it basically just designs one and then it can set it up. Did Bechtel talk about that at all, about how that might save money? So I did ask a little bit about alternative technologies and, and maybe the uh, the progression of, of modular units. Um, that's not really a space that they're in, uh, considering <laughs> that they're building the, the, the large scale <clears throat> infrastructure, but I think that they're interested in it. And uh, there was a lot of talk about how um, by the time this next wave of projects is over, we could see an, an advancement um, in, in the technologies that could help us transition to maybe the next wave of, of fuels. But I think they're keeping a little bit of that uh, close to the chest because really they're their main focus is making sure these giant LNG trains are built. No kidding. Um, I know you also spoke on the sidelines of the conference with TC Energy Corps CEO. Uh, considering all of the pipeline and network that it has in North America, what did you take away from that conversation? Um, I took away that uh, TC Energy is uh, a really optimistic um, company, which is, you know, something that you, if you, based on your assumptions of, of how permitting is going for large pipeline projects now, you wouldn't necessarily assume. Um, but they, they really, uh, they've 
created a lot of infrastructure in the last couple of years. They plan to uh, put a lot more online, I think, uh, in terms of maybe 32 billion in the next year. And they really think that pipeline projects are still possible in North America and especially in the United States. Um, that might have something to do with the fact that they're really focused on the Gulf Coast and uh, unlocking mm-hmm. Haynesville feed gas supply for LNG right now. They plan to grow uh, their North American market uh, to 35% of their business by the end of the decade. And a lot of that is going to be in Gulf Coast in uh, Haynesville projects. Um, you know, when I when I talked to the CEO, he said most of those could be brownfield, but they're going to be, be building a lot of uh, new infrastructure as well, a lot of greenfield infrastructure, um, and and also kind of balancing their projects uh, in terms of you know, the west uh, coast of Canada with uh, the coastal gas link. They'll be linking some LNG terminals there, and then building what he called this backbone of infrastructure in Mexico that'll uh, eventually hopefully feed projects in uh, on the Pacific coast and, and uh, around the, the southern area of the Gulf in Mexico. That's really interesting. And it actually segues really into what Kevin Dobbs covered at Sierra Week. Um, Sierra, uh, Kevin usually covers the natural gas market for us uh, every day and how prices are trending. Uh, he also sat in on several uh, different sessions. Um, Kevin, what did you take away this year from Sierra Week? Well, I had some big takeaways on both infrastructure and LNG. Um, but before I do that, I just wanted to briefly note that heading into the conference, there was then, as there is now, a lot of attention around how low natural gas prices are, futures prices in particular, relative to where they were in 2022 when we had uh, $9 gas or almost $10 gas last summer um, when weather was really hot. Uh, the the uh, LNG demand from Europe was particularly strong. Concerns were elevated amid sort of that first height of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Things have tempered down with, you know, L- with Europe stocking up on LNG enough for the winter, the current winter, and the uh, United States winter this year being relatively benign across most parts of the country, California an exception, parts of the upper Midwest an exception. But overall, weather has been relatively mild and demand has been somewhat soft. Production, on the other hand, is hanging around 100 BCF per day, which is not far from the just over 102 BCF per day record set late in 2022. Production ramped up in response to all that demand last year, um, but being that it is elevated now it and demand has been somewhat light, that's put all the downward pressure on prices. Um, but... And that's expected to remain the case, but with LNG demand expected to once again be strong in Europe uh, ahead of next winter and in, in following years, and as well as Asian economies growing and trying to make the switch to coal, there is an expect expectation that LNG demand is going, going to endure through this decade and natural gas demand overall for likely for several decades. That... Uh, makes the case for continued strong production levels, which is why a lot of analysts see production holding relatively close to where it is now through this year and beyond. And that's because of going back to what Jacob was talking about with the LNG projects, all of the new facilities coming online next year or soon after and following years, there's going to need to be a lot of gas um, 
sent to the Gulf Coast to feed those facilities and meet that demand. From the conference itself, the, the big prevailing message that I heard across the natural gas value chain from major producers like EQT all the way through was that we need more pipeline capacity and we need upgrades to pipelines. And these projects, some of them are in the works. Some of them have been put on hold. Um, the ones that are in works in the works have been delayed often because of regulatory issues, legal issues. And so um, the kind of overarching message from, from executives was that there needs to be legislation and permitting reform that addresses the lengthy process to get approvals to proceed and move forward with projects. They also made the case for uh, um, legal reform, that is making it so that uh, environmental groups and others that challenge pipeline projects have to actually show evidence uh, of problems rather than filing lawsuits based on suspected or potential problems. That way, the courts would have the ability to throw out frivolous lawsuits, allow those with merit to proceed, of course, but you would have you would minimize the the, uh, the likelihood of getting bogged down in in legal problems that really aren't problems, but just sort of a matter of, of delay tactics. That was it. Seemed like pretty much everyone got that memo, which was interesting to me, including uh, acting chairman, uh, acting FERC chairman Willie Phillips, who you know he basically said the same thing. I mean, we have to speed things up, need more greater efficiency. Uh, the permitting process takes way too long. He said, you know, we're not going to cut corners. This is not a matter of reducing needed scrutiny on projects, but but rather a matter of finding ways to eliminate uh, um, unnecessary delays and set realistic targeted deadlines and stick to those deadlines. And he's thinking, you know, you talk about the MVB project, for example, you know, rather than six, seven, eight years, think two years. This is going to be resolved in two years. You're going to know what you're doing. You're going to know what you have on the table and you can proceed. And that's important not only for energy companies, but it's important for the banks and investors that, that back these projects. It's hard to get that backing if you don't have, you know, the assurances of uh, a timely approvals. So, so, for, so for me, that was the big, the big thing that it, you're not going to be able to meet this great LNG demand without the infrastructure to get gas to the Gulf Coast. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I heard a lot of that myself. Uh, and I do think that permitting reform was a big takeaway for everybody. Uh, and it was good that you got to listen to Phillips. Um, he, he sounds like he's a real advocate for doing a lot of things. And uh, I'm really happy that we got to see him there. Um, Morgan Evans, how are you? Uh, Morgan has been working for NGI off and on for several years when she was in college and then came aboard full-time last year. She was with us at Sierra Week, um, and we pretty much threw her into the mix and uh, had her cover a few things. Uh, tell us what your big takeaway was, Morgan. Yeah, so looking at the entire agenda for the week, nearly every event was focused in some way on ESG, decarbonization, sustainability, new technology innovations. That energy transition theme, however, was tied very strongly to the message of natural gas and oil's necessity over the next few years, particularly amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as you said, Carolyn. 
The zeitgeist now for the industry is reducing emissions while maintaining sturdy oil and gas-fired energy production. Sitting in on one panel about renewable natural gas, this message was quite prevalent. Renewable natural gas will not fossil gas, it's drop-in ready, and that is very attractive to companies like Williams and National Grid, both of which were represented on this panel. In the last couple of weeks since Sierra, we at NGI have been writing quite a few stories. I'm currently working on one about RNG. Oil and gas companies are certainly picking it up and have been for years, though as was noted on the panel, there's absolutely no way that RNG could ultimately fully replace natural gas to support the same level of demand we have now. The panelists made sure to note that quite clearly from the get-go, the amount of dairies, landfills, and wastewater facilities would barely make a dent in natural gas consumption, even if fully utilized. RNG will not be the fuel or substance that's going to replace natural gas. Panelists noticed its main, noted its main contribution is taking existing emissions from natural gas with the renewable identification numbers or RIN credits, low carbon fuel standards credits, and applying them to ensure their infrastructure and users are transporting or being supplied with relatively clean energy. The panelists also said that, well, this all costs more than fossil natural gas, so how is it getting paid for? And it is those low carbon fuel standard and renewable identification number credits that help uh, but there was also a lot of chatter for the Inflation Reduction Act and the benefits RNG producers can get there. There was also the admission that there needs to be a long-term market for the fuels so that companies are willing to continue investing in the space. One panelist said that at the start of the RNG revolution, there was a massive rush to partner with dairies and landfills. He likened it to the shale revolution in the early 2000s, but said there's been a slowdown now because there's some uncertainty. The new focus, for Williams especially, was to work within the local regulatory environments, watch the markets, and see if anything comes about in terms of a long-term or forward market for the fuel, which would help spur more investments. And that brings me back to the IRA, which was another theme I saw really play out at the conference. Everyone was over the moon about the IRA and speaking to how companies can use certain pieces of legislation to get tax credits or funding clean energy projects. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, during her speech, which I covered, she was very sure to note that companies have these funds available and should be taking advantage of them, and that it's made the U.S. an irresistible landscape for new energy and decarbonization technologies. And I think she took a different approach to the decarbonization goals. She admitted that we're going to need oil and gas for years to come. She was more ecstatic more ecstatic about taking the expertise and skills from oil and gas companies and incentivizing them to look more into technologies such as hydrogen and geothermal. Grinholm literally called for oil and gas ENPs to take their development skills and drill boreholes for geothermal energy production or to use dried up wells for geothermal energy production. Now, she of course noted that the DOE has loans and grants available, and the Biden administration really wants to see geothermal take off. Perhaps there will be major players taking up that proposition, but I think it's the alternative approach to the energy transition compared to RNG or another prominent technology that was showcased at the conference, and that was direct air capture or carbon capture and storage uh, technologies. I didn't attend any panels related to that, but there were plenty on the agenda, and I know you, Carolyn, wrote quite a few pieces on CCUS and direct air capture opportunities. 
that are really starting to garner more attention. To wrap things up, I'd just say that Sarah really exemplified the two different avenues the industry is engaging with to achieve carbon neutrality and net zero goals. The completely new start from scratch and ramp up renewables while quickly replacing natural gas approach and the new technology put toward existing resources approach. Thanks, Morgan. And thanks, Kevin and Jacob. I really enjoyed listening to you guys and I learned things. I was at Sarah all week, but it's always good to hear what other journalists have to say and what they learned from the executives and the experts who were there. And many thanks to the NGI Hub and Flow listeners. If you'd like to know more about how we what how and what we learned at Sierra Week, please check our coverage or reach out to one of us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. See you next time. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or bid-week pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.